Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 251 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Sherry Walling about how trauma and stress impact smart people doing hard things. Today's podcast is brought to you by PwC Insights Officer, Alert Communications, SaneBox, and Ross Intelligence. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So Stephanie, today's podcast is about mental health, and I've promised before that I want to have more conversations about mental health on the podcast, but something that has been, I guess, frustrating me is the way bar associations and courts and firms often address mental health and substance abuse, and I'm putting address in air quotes there. I was at a state bar convention recently where the court was talking about all the resources it has available for mental health and substance abuse. And I've heard lots of firms talk about all the resources they make available. And I was just recently hearing about a county bar association figuring out how to make more resources available. And I I find this frustrating because one of the hallmarks of depression and substance abuse and anxiety and ADHD and other forms of mental health is denial. You start out by denying it, or it's hard to identify, right? Like with ADHD, everyone has trouble focusing sometimes. Everybody has a bit too much to drink sometimes. You know, oh, I'm not depressed, I'm just sad. And it's a hallmark of depression in particular that it's really hard, if not impossible, to reach out and help yourself. And so my frustration is I feel like this approach to of making resources available. We're here if you want to talk to us, you know, here there's papers and, and referrals. It's a way of saying that we're doing something, but I don't think it's calculated to actually address mental health or substance abuse. Yeah. I mean, it might be a step, it might be one step, but certainly is not enough. Yeah. And in my frustration, I've shared this and I was at a conference recently and I went up to the organizers and I was like, okay, this was great. Here's what else I need. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I need to know how to recognize red flags. I need to know what to look for. And if I'm concerned, I need to have some tools that I can use to approach that person. Because I think, I mean, you tell me, but I think you've shared even before that several people kind of nudged you along your path to say, maybe you could use some help. I don't know that it's always one person, but oftentimes it takes multiple people saying something to someone for them to kind of click and be like, oh, maybe there is something here. I mean, the final thing was when you and Aaron and I were having dinner in Atlanta, I brought it up and, and I think Aaron was like, yeah, you know, anxiety sounds like something you might have or something, you know, something like that. And I was like, okay, even Aaron is seeing it. So, <laughs> which <Yeah>. duh, but. <laughs> but I didn't and I don't see you every yeah. day because I'm in Atlanta and you're, you know, but to the point, it's hard sometimes if you're not with someone or you might not recognize or you might not know the signs. I wouldn't even, I, personally, I don't even know what to look for. Yeah, I guess that's part of it. You know, I don't have a prescription for the right way to address mental health and substance abuse, but I, I think just the idea that passively making things available to people who are struggling is unlikely to be very effective for many people. And I hope, like I said, I don't know what the answer is, but 
I hope that we can do more than that. I hope we don't just make resources available and then pat ourselves on the back and say we're done. You know, teaching people to recognize signs of it, helping people have conversations, all of those things seem like really valuable things. But I guess it all starts from a point of destigmatizing it. You know, let's just own the fact that a huge chunk of the population struggles with some form of mental health and many, many lawyers struggle with substance abuse. And those shouldn't be things that we need to keep secret. Yeah, I think we need to talk about it more. And, and I was sharing with you that my mother-in-law is a children's book author, and mm-hmm. she often talks, she teaches kids how to share stories because she says stories are, are what, you know, blend us together. You hear someone's story and one, it kind of helps you like them more usually <laughs> if, you, mm-hmm. if you have some emotional intelligence, I suppose, but we learn through stories. And so it occurred to me as you were talking that if we were sharing more stories If people were talking about this was the issues I was having, these are the signs I saw, this is how I was feeling, and this is what was kind of coming up for me, then maybe somebody who is suffering in silence might say, huh, that's interesting. I'm feeling a couple of those things, Mm -hmm. but it never occurred to me to connect that with this, you know? And so I think we need to do a lot more and have some ways to share our stories and to talk about it. And like you said, destigmatize it and just be open about it and say, you know, here it is. Let's deal with the messy stuff. Instead, we're taught to be polite. And if we don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, or, you know, don't bring up the hard things. Well, and let's just all agree that there's no point in being ashamed or embarrassed about mental health or substance abuse, right? Like there's a problem if you don't address it, but there's no sense in being shamed. I guess, you know, somebody on World Mental Health Day, I shared with my social networks that, hey, I have anxiety in the same way that I shared it on the podcast around the same time. And a couple of people were like, that's so brave, good for you. And I, it had never occurred to me to be ashamed or embarrassed about this, <laughs> which is maybe something weird about the way that I think about things. But I can't help the way my brain is wired and neither can anyone else. I think that's the key piece. Like I, I've told you this before. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but I was once treated for depression and was actually hospitalized. And during that hospital stay, I had to go to classes and learn about all my things. (laughs) And one of the things we learned about was the chemical imbalance that happens when you experience depression. I had never heard that before. I didn't know it. And this was, you know, this happens to be about 20 years ago. So I hope that times are changing. I hope people are realizing this. But that was such an aha moment for me in my life to be like, oh, wait, there's a medical biological explanation. This isn't about me just feeling bad or being blue. You know, like my dad was like, oh, maybe just work harder. You know, that's what I do when I'm down. And I was like, this that's not working for me. And I couldn't figure out how I couldn't solve it. Like I'm an achiever, as you know, I like to solve things. And I was like, I was, <laughs> too, and I, yeah. right. And I, I couldn't work my way out of this thing, right? I just was stuck. And it kind of had to get bad for me to finally admit that I needed help. And then when they told me about the chemistry, I was like, oh, right. Okay. And then like some medicine to change that. And I was back to my old self. But if we don't talk about that, then yeah, like that's just crazy. No, you've kind of nailed it. And that's how it has been for me too, right? I tried all of the stuff, you know, I've been taking fish oil supplements for a while now and I've been exercising every day and and I went to the doctor and, you know, they give you the anxiety survey and it's like, whoa, totally. And then I went back for my checkup last week and I put a zero in every column because, you know, getting treatment was the thing for me. It's just, it's not something you can think your way out of necessarily. So anyway, all that is to say, we like to share stories, more stories around mental health. And so reach out to us, share your story, 
If you're willing to do it in the Facebook Insider or Lab Group, that would be great. If you aren't yet comfortable, it's okay. Like there's also no shame in feeling ashamed <laughs> so or embarrassed. And so if you don't want to share it out in public, send us an email. You can just email sam at lawyerist.com or stephanie at lawyerist.com and just tell us and, and let us know if we can share it with our listeners, whether that's with or without your name. It's totally up to you. And uh, we'd love to hear your stories and sometimes sharing those stories, whether or not you know, like maybe you're not sure if your story is about depression or about being sad. That's okay too. Just share it. And I think if we tell more stories to each other, then we'll understand more about each other and about mental health and substance abuse and things like that. So do that. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with T.C. Whitaker from PwC Insights Officer, and then I'll talk with Sherry. Hey, this is T.C. Whitaker, CEO of PwC Insights Officer. Looking forward to speaking with everyone today. Hey, T.C., thanks for being on the podcast today. So we're going to do a few conversations, but for this first one, you wanted to talk about the cost of inefficiency in a smaller firm or for a solo attorney, right? That's exactly right, Sam, and thanks for teeing that up. There is um, this wild thing that's going on out there in the marketplace where when all of a sudden you become an attorney, you think you're no longer responsible for being in charge of running a small business. Mm -hmm. Whereas in all small businesses across the world, everyone is focused on how can I be more efficient? What are things that I can do inside my business to make sure that we're doing things faster, better, cheaper, delivering more value for our clients and our customers. And for some reason, those rules just stop at the door to a law firm. And I'm not sure why they do, but being inefficient inside a law firm is something that can lead to a lot of lost profit for the partners of the firm. So as soon as you say efficiency, I start thinking about technology and procedures, which are both good and bad, right? So how are some of the ways that technology and process can impact efficiency? That's exactly right. And what we must start with is process first. Technology, software, all these things that we use, these things are merely tools. That's all they are. They neither think nor make decisions or think about the best way to do things. They're just tools that enable us to do the things that we do better, faster, cheaper, smarter. So what we have to make sure that we have, first and foremost, are good processes for ways that we do things. If we do not have those, the technology can actually go against us. You can be the most cloud-enabled firm where everything talks to everything and everything works seamlessly across all the systems in your business. But because your processes are broken, what you find is that you just get better and faster at doing the wrong things. So we gotta fix that process piece first and then enable it with those tools or technologies that we have available to us. That really resonates. We spend a lot of time trying to refocus lawyers where, you know, like I think productivity and efficiency is a really good example of this, where people have an attitude of, I just need software and then I will be organized. But I think it's the opposite, where if you're not organized, then no software or anything else is going to help you. That's exactly right. And what's happened is these software companies have gone out there and they've started to spin up these marketing, these genius marketers that are out there in the world and tell you that all you need is this piece of technology in your life that's going to be better. And what they just don't do is they don't play the whole movie for you. And the whole movie is, is yes, we need to be better and faster and more efficient with our processes. 
and then enable them with these great technologies that are available to us today. Your company is a software company. So my guess is that you find it a heck of a lot easier and you find that your customers are more successful if they come in with healthy processes and then use your technology rather than coming in and hoping the technology is the answer. What we have found is we'll take them coming to us in all shapes and sizes. And what we have found because of who we are is that we help them design these better processes. We have then gone out into the marketplace and said, what are some of the best technologies that are available out there in the world that if we get the best processes in place for your law firm, that we can then use to enable you to do those things even better and even faster and even more efficiently. So we actually help them with the process piece and then enable them with the technologies of which you are correct. We have built some of those technologies. Very cool. So if you want to learn more about how Insights Officer can help your firm be more efficient and take advantage of process, visit insightsofficer.com and you can learn more about Insights Officer and how it can help with automated bookkeeping, billing, and insights for small and medium firms. TC, thanks. Look forward to seeing you again. Thanks, Tim. Hi, I am Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and I focus on the mental health aspects of entrepreneurship, of high performance, of people who are doing really high intensity, challenging things in their work. So I have a podcast called Zen Founder, where I talk about all things related to kind of family life, mental health, balance kinds of topics. And also a book called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, How to Run Your Business Without Letting It Run You, which is available on Amazon. Well, welcome back, Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm really thrilled to have you back. Last time you were on, we talked about stress and sort of work-life balance. And today I want to dig deeper and learn more from you about how trauma can play into this. And so maybe you could talk a little bit just to get us started about what trauma even is, and maybe a little bit about your experience helping people with it. Yeah. You know, it's actually a fairly complicated history, how we understand trauma. There wasn't, you know, a formal diagnosis related to trauma, um, Mm -hmm. what we now know as PTSD, until the 80s. Before that, we sort of assumed that people would bounce back when they experienced hard things, and the people that didn't bounce back, well, something was wrong with them. We never really drew the link between something really scary or bad happening to you and that causing changes in the way that you see the world, experience emotion, or even changes in your physiological body. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Because like, this is one of the things that I didn't understand. Like I get the version of trauma and PTSD that I think of most often when it comes to like people who've been exposed to war or terrorism or something like that, right? Where that something really awful happened and it has emotional, mental repercussions throughout your life. And I guess to my unsophisticated brain, that's easy to say that's PTSD, but that's not just what trauma is, right? Like what other kinds of experiences can result in trauma? In a very sort of strict definition, trauma is any experience that really overwhelms the body and mind and makes someone afraid for their life or threatens their physical integrity. Like that sort of phrase is one that we often used to talk about, violations of a sexual nature or uh, physical abuse as a child, or 
we can experience trauma when we're witnessing it happen to someone else or even hearing about it happen to someone that we love. So think about someone that you love deeply, your your spouse or your child being in a car accident. That can be highly traumatic, right? We're mm-hmm. afraid for the safety and well-being of this person that we care about. So I can already hear, you know, I kind of have this, the, the voice in the back of my brain who who wants to push back on this because as listeners know, I've been dealing with my own mental health issues and, and I've been defensive about those in my, in my own self-examination. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what's wrong with just suck it up? Like, why is this something that we actually need to think about as opposed to, you know, go walk it off, have a drink, take some time, it'll go away. What's wrong about that? Well, it would be great if it worked. <laughs> and and I'd be like, nothing, nothing's wrong with that. <laughs> the problem is it actually doesn't work. So let's think about trauma from this very broad framework as a disruption of safety. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, it changes our physiology. It changes how our bodies react to stressors. It changes our thought patterns. It changes our worldview, how we see the world. It changes our emotions. It changes how we see ourselves. So walk it off might help with maybe some physiological disruption or a big glass of scotch will certainly make you not feel, but it's not going to help with the full range of the ways that trauma shapes your human self. It's not going to help with all those other pieces. Right. And then how does that manifest in like, I want to ask you about the word trigger, you know, what triggers PTSD? And I know that trigger has become this uh, I think, you know, the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., just wrote a book called Triggered and where he, you know, tried to diminish the entire concept of it. But it's a real thing. Right. And like, how what does that mean? What when we're really talking about actually PTSD triggered? What does that mean? So yesterday I was riding in an Uber. I was going to the, the airport in Sacramento mm-hmm. and it was very early in the morning. It was like four thirty or five in the morning. And I was sitting in the back seat and the driver was sitting in the front seat. And very uncharacteristically of me, actually, I leaned forward and pointed between the two, between the driver's seat and the passenger seat. And I was pointing at the moon. It was a giant harvest moon. And I was saying, look at the moon. And my driver said, ma'am, I need you to stay in the back seat. Hmm. And he got real stern. His whole demeanor changed. And he said, don't reach up here. You need to stay in the back seat. And I was kind of like, okay, I'm back here. I'm cool. Like I was just pointing at them and I didn't mean to disrupt you. And then, you know, we kind of spread in silence for a minute. And then he kind of goes on to share a little bit about his life as a fighter, his life as someone who has been incarcerated, Mm. you know, that he's had a life that I suspect has probably had quite a lot of trauma where someone reaching from behind him into his peripheral vision unexpectedly made him very uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's, that's an example of a trigger. Triggers are super real. Sometimes they are very anchored to the situation in which the trauma first occurred, you know, a sight or a scent or a physiological experience that reminds us of trauma, but sometimes they're emotional trauma. So walking into a room and feeling a wave of anxiety might not sort of directly tie back to a trauma, but it's that sense of uncertainty or fear. Is this okay that this is happening? Is an emotional trigger that might cause someone to go into sort of a traumatic place. Is it almost that like your body has become used to a different kind or level of fear 
And, you know, that it can all come flooding back to you when any number of things happen. It's just sort of that your body experiences fear and discomfort in a different way than a brain that hasn't been exposed to trauma has. Yeah, there's a couple of things. So one, our memories are particularly accurate for the sensory cues of trauma. Hmm. We might not always remember the narrative, like the facts of the situation, but we remember the sights, the sounds, the scent, the texture of, you know, in the case of an assault survivor, perhaps like the texture of a beard against our skin, like the sensory cues get encoded in a really powerful way that we don't always have language for. So it's not this sort of neat, nice, rational, I had this experience, therefore I'm sensitive to this. It's like your body sort of shroom goes into a memory that you might not even have, you know, language to explain. I feel like I want to analogize this to my own experience with anxiety, and maybe that's not right, but, and you can tell me, but Aaron and I would be having an argument about whether or not M dashes should have spaces around them when we're doing copy editing on our site. And I would get frustrated with his position and my body would become like flooded with whatever. And I, I wouldn't be able to focus or reason or even think and recall our conversation accurately. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why a conversation about punctuation should ever make anyone feel that level of stress. But it's like my body only knew one way to experience stress. And I'm wondering if trauma does a similar thing where your body only knows how to experience anything associated with anything that triggers your brain in that way, that's how it reacts. I know Aaron a little bit, and I can imagine having any (laughs) argument with Aaron would create a sensation of helplessness. (laughs) And a sensation of helplessness is right in the trauma zone Mm -hmm. of the minute that you feel like, well, yeah, but, but, but you're not hearing me or getting me or understanding my perspective, that sense of I'm stuck in this conversation that keeps repeating itself and I can't make any headway (laughs) can be a trauma cue. So, okay. So that's not unreasonable. (laughs) You, when we were talking just before I hit record, you said that you wanted to make a distinction between capital T trauma and lowercase t trauma. What does that mean? Yeah. I, you know, I think the, the, clinician in me, and I spent a couple of years working in the VA system, so in the Veterans Administration, and one year doing a deep dive at the National Center for PTSD. So I spent a lot of time really thinking about specifically the PTSD diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And part of my job was to evaluate in a sort of yes or no categorical way, whether someone had PTSD or not. And in that framework, we really want to make clear that trauma is a very, very life-threatening kind of experience. Sometimes people use the word trauma in ways that are, I would say, lowercase t trauma. They're talking about things that are, that are hard, that are painful, that are scary, but capital T trauma from you know, a clinical perspective is something where really there's a threat to life or safety that is really very real either to someone's self or to, you know, to someone right around them. Is that on a spectrum or is that pretty binary? I mean, the interpretation of life threat is very different. What's threatening to a two-year-old is, you know, can be a very angry, screaming, yelling, dysregulated parent because an angry, screaming, dysregulated parent when you're two can be life-threatening. 
your body is really little and you're really vulnerable. Yeah. So, so it's really subjective as well. It's subjective and it's developmental. It's based on context. If I think you're unreasonable to have been in fear for your life, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> if you really were in fear for your life, then you were in fear for your life and, and it may have resulted in trauma or probably Yes. Did. Yep. Earlier iterations of the PTSD diagnosis had a specifier that the event must have been accompanied by horror or helplessness. Hmm. And they took that out and later in the DSM-5, the current iteration, partially because some people just freeze and some yeah. people have no thoughts or feelings. So that didn't really account for, you know, that experience of trauma, which is quite common. I feel like I'm not going to be able to ask the right questions here. What, what else should someone need to understand Maybe in order to help themselves recognize their own trauma, I, mean, I was explaining to you that I think the legal profession is in a really almost a crisis state when it comes to mental health. And I'm wondering to what extent trauma might play a role for some lawyers in that. And I'm wondering how, how do you, it's hard enough to come to terms with the fact that you might be anxious or depressed in a clinical, in a way that needs help. <laughs> how do you, how do you even recognize such a big deal as trauma and acknowledge that or figure it out? And maybe this is something I should go see someone about. You know, one of the things that might be helpful to talk about here is, you know, a study we talked about a little bit before we hopped on together. And this is the adverse childhood experiences study, mm. which I think is super important for any attorney to have some general literacy and, you know, because on some level you all work with humans. Mm -hmm. So this is a study that was conducted in the late nineties, a partnership between the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. And they looked at mass data sets, like 17,000 people. And they asked them about 10 categories of early childhood abuse and neglect. And then they mapped that onto their health records with their permission, of course. Mm -hmm. And what they found in this study was is really quite interesting. When people had four or more of these adverse childhood experiences, they were far more likely to experience depression, suicidality, major, major health concerns. It really, really changed the risk profile of both health behavior, psychological behavior, mental health problems, and then generally high risk behavior. So the likelihood that someone's used like intravenous needles or the likelihood that someone has had a really high number of sexual partners, those kinds of behaviors really changed looking at someone's early life experiences. And not all of those early life experiences are what we would maybe call capital T trauma. One of them was whether or not your parents got divorced, right. which is not life-threatening, but it is totally destabilizing for many, many kids who experience that. And then it also looked at the presence of a parent in your home who had mental illness or the presence of a parent who had a, a substance abuse problem whether or not you had a parent that was incarcerated. And then it looked at all kinds of different abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional, psychological abuse, and then neglect. So the study, I think, really tells an interesting story of how we develop over time and how our early experiences... You know, we all like to think that as grownups, we're highly in control of ourselves, but... Mm -hmm. I think this points to the fact that our bodies and minds and assumptions develop quite young and are shaped by our early experiences. My wife was a, a lawyer for the teachers union in Minnesota, and now she works at a mentoring organization. And ACEs and trauma-informed education is really one of her things that she cares a lot about. And so I have sort of a passing familiarity with it through our conversation. And 
The ACES test is really interesting. You can find it online. I think it would help everyone to take it just to better understand what we're talking about here. And not because... An ACEs score is something that's going to, you know, set in stone your health and psychological well-being, but because it is important to know what, what risks you're carrying and what pain or struggle you are as an adult organizing yourself around and trying to overcome, whether you're super aware of that or not. Yeah. Understanding the problem you're dealing with is really important. And I guess, you know, I pushed back on anxiety for years before I finally said, okay, maybe I am, went to the doctor, he gave me a pill and it went away and now I don't have anxiety. And that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's not, I trauma, there's no pill for trauma, I don't think, but, <laughs> but there are ways to help you deal with it, but you can't deal with it until you know what it is. And I think that's why maybe taking the ACEs score would be helpful for people or just in understanding, you know, one of my wife's things is understanding the trauma that your clients are, might be facing yeah. could be a really valuable thing as as an advocate as somebody who represents people like especially if you're a criminal defense lawyer but in family law or whatever informing your representation with a better understanding of your client's trauma could be really important i mean think about how you operate in your daily life if you really see the world as a dangerous and scary place mm-hmm. you make all kinds of decisions differently than someone who has a general default setting of safety. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I think that comes out in all kinds of human relationships and choices. And if we can kind of have an awareness of, oh, maybe, you know, this person has this kind of experience in their background, therefore they're just working with a different set of conditions or assumptions than another person who doesn't have a trauma history. It's a bit of empathy, right? Like in, in your engagement, your interactions with other people, it's are they just being jerks or is something else going on there and understanding what else might be going on there just, or what else could be going on there could be helpful. It's not that you go around labeling everybody (laughs) a PTSD survivor, but um, is there a version of the ACEs test that you recommend or an easy place to find it? It's on the CDC website, I believe. That's usually where I go for all things ACEs. It's the original study and it's a really nice write-up of the different implications of what the study might mean. I will throw that link in our show notes so people can find it. That'd be great. Yeah. I'm deep in our conversation, so I've neglected to take a break to hear from our sponsors. So we'll do that and we'll come back and then we'll keep talking about this. We'll be right back. A legal only call center, Alert Communications has been helping law firms and legal marketing agencies with new client intake for over 50 years. Alert responds to and captures all leads for your law firm efficiently using their highly trained intake specialists and software solutions. They work 24-7, 365 as an extension of your law firm in both English and Spanish. Alert strives to set best practice standards within the mass tort legal community by using ethical ideals, in turn elevating the quality of client services and earning the trust of attorneys. To find out how Alert can increase your mass tort or class action lead conversion rates, call 844-MY-INTAKE or find them at alertcommunications.com. Longtime podcast listeners and lawyerist readers know that Sam and I get pretty excited about email productivity tips, but we know that most people don't have the time or energy to be email productivity nerds like us. So it's great that SameBox will take care of fixing your inbox for you. I've used SameBox for a while now, and it automatically organizes your incoming email into smart folders so you don't have to be overwhelmed by a busy inbox and don't have to see important client emails next to junky coupon offers, distracting you from the work you need to do. Best yet, SameBox learns with you, so if you find it puts something in the wrong folder, just move it, and SameBox will automatically learn your preference. It also has nifty features like Sane Black Hole, where you can drag messages from annoying senders you never want to hear from again. It's so simple, you won't need to learn anything to use it. 
It just takes care of everything itself. SaneBox works directly with every single email server or service that has ever been created, so it will definitely work for you. Get a free two-week trial and a $25 credit by visiting samebox.com slash lawyerist today. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash lawyerist. With Ross Intelligence, lawyers conducting legal research leverage AI to get to the heart of legal issues fast. Ask a query in natural language on the Ross legal research platform, and Ross will return on-point case law. Attorney Jonathan Udoka says he's able to use Ross as though it were a first-year associate doing top-flight legal research. At $89 a month, Ross is not only fast and intuitive, it's also affordable. See what Ross can do. Go to rossintelligence.com lawyerist today and get a 14-day free trial. Use the promo code lawyerist for 10% off your first-year subscription. Okay, we're back. So Sherry, maybe we've already touched on this and you could sum it up, but what should the average person understand about trauma that you think is mostly misunderstood in the world? I think it's, you know, it's helpful just as a, as a human practice to lead with compassion. (laughs) It's helpful to remember that none of us are immune from being hurt and to sort of be tender with each other's hurts and our own hurts. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that we are as, as leaders, as people who have some either, you know, professional power or authority, the more that we are conscious about trying to create safe spaces, whether that's psychological safety, whether that's physical safety for the people that we work with. I think that goes a long way to counteract people's experiences of trauma. You just used another term that I think has become loaded in a problematic way in the public discourse, and that's the idea of of safe spaces. Maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think when we're talking about literal spaces, safe spaces, (laughs) we are talking about um, places where there are windows and where there's light and where it doesn't feel like you're trapped in a corner. It doesn't feel like you can have um, unexpected people moving in and out of your you know, space without warning. I think we offer a great deal of dignity to our clients when we create office spaces that are you know, warm and inviting and feel homey and safe. Those kinds of things I think can go a long way. I think, you know, as someone with a PhD, like many of my attorney brothers and sisters listening to this, sometimes we really optimize for prestige. We've got our diplomas up and we've got all our things up and, and, you know, you got to ask the question, does that really create, do we want people to be intimidated or impressed (laughs) or afraid, or are are we creating neutral spaces where it's okay for people to really talk from their humanness? We recently went to the Clio Cloud Conference in San Diego and heard from Deanna Van Buren, who is an architect and has a project called Designing Justice. And Mm -hmm. she has actually been doing work on this. And I hope to have her on the podcast soon so that we can talk at more length about putting together physical safe spaces, because that's what she's had to do to try and bring convicts and, and ex-convicts out of the prison system and bring them together and help them move on, you know, figuring out what it means to give second chances, but how to make sure that there is a space that you can work on that in that's conducive to it. And she has all kinds of ideas for like how to organize a room, what kinds of rooms, you know, lighting, mm-hmm. um, furniture, all kind. It's really, it was a fascinating talk. And I, I hope to do more about that because that's it's not always intuitive that just the space itself could be the cause of comfort or discomfort. Isn't it interesting? Mm-hmm. I will just as a little bit more of a personal share, I'm raising a kiddo who spent the first seven years of life in another family where there was a high degree of trauma. So she mm-hmm. came to live with us when she was seven and she reacts to all kinds of things that are unexpected. 
And so part of the the role of our family is to anticipate times of year, certain holidays, certain scents, certain songs, certain just cues to her that remind her of parts of her life that, that were painful and scary in the past. And when we have some sensitivity to those, then we were quickly working for emotion regulation and for calming. And so I think that's another thing when we talk about safe spaces is, you know, not only the room, but like the emotional quality of engagement and how do you maintain calm in the presence of someone who is, who is dysregulated or who is disrupted or when you get dysregulated because you get triggered because you're someone who has a sense of your own traumatic past, perhaps. How do you help yourself re-regulate or ask for help calming down yourself if you need to? How do you take a time out? How do you take a break? How do you take a walk around the block so that you can reset and return? Walking around the block is not a, <laughs> not a healing for trauma, but it is a, it's a short-term, like, I got to reset so I can get back to my work. It's giving yourself some space to sort of like let it dissipate, I guess, right? Yep. Yeah. At my kids' school, they give the kids tools for this, not necessarily trauma, but just, you know, to calm down. And they have just all kinds upset. of, yeah, they have all kinds of tools to help kids deal with anger and frustration and stuff. And, and they talk about it, you know, use one of your tools and sit on your hands or there's a bunch of different things that they can try. Maybe this is where some of that comes from. I mean, one thing that I think, you know, to speak maybe to the question a little bit more that you asked me a few minutes ago is one thing that I think we don't always give credit for is the fact that it's not necessarily something that lives in our minds. It lives in our bodies. And when we are talking about how to alleviate or even regulate ourselves, there's often a physiological component to that. Mm -hmm. It's regulating our breathing first and foremost an amazing tool to calm ourselves down, whether we're in anxiety or in trauma or or whatever disruption we're experiencing, to move our breath to be low and slow actually helps to, you know, better engage our vagus nerve, which is this really long nerve that goes through our spinal cord. That's V-A-G-U-S, right? Not Las Vegas. Yeah. Not Las Vegas. Not (laughs) pull the slats, but but vagus or vagal nerve, which is the body's system to restore back to homeostasis after there's been a disruption. Hmm. So it's, it's the vagus nerve that says, it sends the all clear signal to the rest of the body systems. So breath is the best way to tap into that and to begin the all clear, you know, signal for the rest of the body. So when we're teaching mindfulness, for example, whether it's to grownups or kids or a good yoga practice for grownups or kids, those are the things that help to re-regulate the system in the moment in real time. And then once you acquire those skills and you use them over time with repetitive practice, then you begin to restore and reset the body's system um, more systemically. It's not just an in-the-moment intervention, but it's something that helps restore calm more generally. I will say that a lot of people who are really struggling wait way too long to get help. Mental health care is not perfect, and it is way more of... um, an art than a science sometimes. Sometimes people have an experience like you where they go to the doctor and they say, this is how I'm feeling and they have the right medicine right away. Mm -hmm. It's often not that. And it requires a little more going back and tinkering. And it's a combination of medicine and therapy and, you know, exercise or diet change. It's, it's not, it's not super straightforward and simple. Yeah. Usually. However, there are lots of things that we can do that do help, whether it's severe PTSD all the way to like mild anxiety and sleep disruption. So 
most people wait too long. Most people tough it out, especially high performing, you know, very cerebral. I can do this. I can talk myself out of this. I don't wish to be feeling this way. Therefore I won't, you know, there's really no need for that. That was my experience with anxiety. I've heard many, many people talk about trauma in the same way and depression. And I guess I'd like you to maybe help me think through this um, issue because I, as I said, our profession is sick and there's no, there's no secret about that. Everyone knows that and firms and bar associations and courts are trying to figure out how to help. And the most common response is to make resources available, right? Like at the bar association, we have lots of resources available to people who are dealing with anxiety and depression and trauma or substance abuse. And it strikes me that when denial is (laughs) that you have a problem seems to be a hallmark of all of these things, that counting on the person to proactively go and get resources is not calculated to be successful. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's just an extra step that makes it tough. So what can we do instead of just making resources available? I mean, one of the things that that I am dabbling in as part of my business model is that I am actually sort of an on-call psychologist for a couple of different companies. So I'm more than like, here's a number. It's more like I've already met everyone in the company. Mm. They know me, they know my face. They've had at least a brief conversation or a webinar or something with me. So it's less scary and less like, Hey, here's 10 numbers of psychologists who may or may not take your health insurance. Yeah. Why don't you just go make an appointment with Sherry? Right. So having someone, you know, if you're in a large firm, having someone frankly kind of in-house is really helpful Hmm. and that can make it one less barrier for people getting support and help. Like instead of just making the resources available, it's showing everybody what the resources are, introducing them to the people who are the resources. And I guess that makes a ton of sense to me because like my conversations on this podcast, for example, have been a window to a number of realizations about myself. And hopefully for our listeners, that's true too. I, I know it is. And I suppose somebody that you've already met in one way or another, it's a heck of a lot easier just to follow up with a question for them. Yeah. They're just less scary. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you imagine that first conversation. And I think this is the hardest thing is that you get on the phone and you tell this stranger, you know, I'm really struggling with Da, 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 or I'm just not very motivated anymore. And you're not sure if they're the right stranger and they don't know you and yeah. Yeah. Or if they even get it when you say it like that. Mm-hmm. And then of course you have to say out loud this vulnerability that you dislike. You don't want to be saying it. You don't want to be living in a story. Right. But now you're on the phone with the stranger trying to explain that, you know, you have no interest in sex and uh, you haven't eaten and your hair's falling out. <laughs> and you're like, wow, when I say it like that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, to, to someone like me, you just hear, you know, I feel a lot of compassion and then I, I also, I've seen it before. Like I know what that is. There's a word for that. We can help. Yeah. It's, and it almost, uh, you can reassure, no, it's normal for someone experiencing the kind of trauma, you know, with the background that you do with the ACEs score you have with whatever, it's normal for you to be experiencing that. Here's what's going on. Here's how we can help. Yeah. That sounds very reassuring actually. <laughs> yeah. And I will tell you that, you know, sometimes mental health professionals aren't, we don't, we don't always do a good job of providing that immediate reassurance. Sure. And we assume that people understand therapy from our perspective, probably like many of, of you assume that people understand the law and people are very clueless about the law and people are very clueless about therapy. But generally, I think it is so worth the time and effort to, you know, try to get in with someone who who can pattern match better than you, who has seen and heard these things before 
whereas you probably haven't. That's not your job. So I imagine we've got at least two different kinds of listeners at this point. One is has maybe heard us say something that is like, huh, maybe there's something going on in my head. And then I think the other one would be somebody who is who maybe knows somebody who they would want to help or just was, you know, when we talked about taking trauma into account when you're representing people and their interest or working with people, they're interested in learning more about that. If somebody's listening and they maybe recognized something that, that resonates with them about themselves and maybe they're wondering if something's going on in their head, what should they do next? You know, honestly, the first thing I would do would be to write it down. Just take some notes, start journaling, start like observing yourself Hmm. right now in like pause the podcast, (laughs) get out your piece of paper, write down what you're observing. So you can, you can have some way to sort of hold it and reflect it. It never, ever hurts to have like a mental health professional in your back pocket. You don't have to go three times a week and talk about your mother. Like you don't have to do that. But you know, I work with a number of attorneys and I see them around their schedules and I might see them like maybe once a week for six weeks and then we go to monthly and then they just call me when the Minnesota winter comes and they're like, I'm sad again. And I'm like, okay, I got you. So I would say that any high-performing professional, whether or not this conversation about trauma is landing for you, any high-performing professional is going to be a little bit better at their work and at their life if they have that therapeutic relationship. Yeah. Find a person. And maybe one of the things that scared the shit out of me in getting help was I was terrified of being on medication. And it turns out that medication is fucking magical and it's the greatest thing in the world. But I think understanding a little bit more about what treatment might've looked like and how that might've affected me in advance might've helped. And so I'm wondering if somebody goes and finds a mental health professional for trauma, what might the different courses of treatment look like for that? How might you, how might someone help you deal with that? We're not really interesting time in the treatment of trauma in particular. So one of the things that is really, I think, pretty exciting is that we are now having some really good psychopharmological medication interventions for trauma, one of which is MDMA, which is the the chemical that. that makes up ecstasy. And so much more than a club drug, now the MDMA um, trial is at the third and final phase of FDA approval. And it's happening in places like John Hopkins. And I think UC San Francisco has a site. So all around the country are these sites that are piloting and, and verifying this treatment for PTSD, which involves a combination of these kind of day-long MDMA sessions hmm. and psychotherapy. So it's and it looks to be very, very effective. And so all of us are like sort of scratching our heads thinking, oh my goodness, like this might just fix it. It might be a great tool. Hmm. So what just to speak a little bit to what is happening, um, MDMA is an empathogen. It, it creates more empathy within our systems. So it, you know, it does that at the, the neurotransmitter level and it allows us as humans to reflect on or approach these very hard, painful, scary experiences in our lives without fear, but rather with empathy, which is almost impossible. It's not impossible, but it's tricky to do in talk therapy because those that wiring is so like encoded. It's so hardwired to be afraid or upset when you talk about these painful things. So if we can remove the upset, we can talk about the memory or the experience without without um, duplicating the same pattern over and over. 
So it's really very interesting. And it is, of course, this combination of talk therapy and uh, a medication intervention. But MDMA therapy is not yet Legal, it is right? not yet FDA approved. It's not <laughs> okay. yet legal. But I will say, you know, coming to a major research university near you in the next 12 to 18 months. So that might be something that in the near future, people might be able to take advantage of it. And it, I've read a bit about it, too. It sounds really exciting, actually, that it sounds like it might just actually fix PTSD. Yes, it well, it's not a hundred percent successful. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You know, there's always there's always I have a, a caveat. To... <laughs> nope, sorry, <Okay. laughs> we we don't we don't get a universal fix for this one. But other more traditional or more typical forms of treatment usually do involve a combination of medication and psychotherapy. PTSD does involve that that same kind of anxiety arousal that you're familiar with. And mm -hmm. so we often use anti-anxiety kinds of medications to help. I was wondering about that. Like a lot of these things are very similar actually, aren't they? They map on the body in really similar ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Things that help with sleep can be super helpful. Sleep is a huge, hugely disrupted for many people with PTSD. Hmm. There's often a affectual or emotional disruption or dysregulation, which can respond really well to medicines that are often also used to treat depression. So it is a little bit of a, when I say it's an art, you know, you sort of have to mix your particular paint palette based on who you are and your symptoms and what medicines work well in your body. So it's usually not, I love that you had such a great experience, Sam. But I, it's, I it's, know that mine is not typical. Yeah. I, and I just have to <laughs> warn people of that because it's, you know, it's usually a six week to three month kind of process to be like, oh yeah, that works well. Oh yeah, that doesn't. And you have to have a great relationship with your with your physician or your nurse practitioner, whoever's working with you. That part of it is I was expecting that and I got something different. I was expecting that to have to like establish care with a general practitioner and then go and get, you know, wait six months to meet with a psychiatrist and then they would do some tests. And then after some tests, they would finally prescribe something and then it wouldn't work and I'd have to... Pre and I'm so glad that my process ended up getting completely fast forwarded because I went to a GP and they were like, I can just give you something and it worked, which is beautiful, unusual and amazing and, and great. But I, I know that's not typical. And I was told one of the reasons I dragged my feet for so long was the experience of getting the help seemed so onerous. And mm. I don't know if there's <laughs> I don't know if there's a, a fix for that other than just like, I guess you just have to suck it up and go and maybe find somebody to be your accountability buddy for helping you go. Yeah, I I think, you know, sometimes you're, it's surprising. That's not often the case, right? Like sometimes you do get in with that psychiatrist in just the right time or you find the right person. This is also frankly a great thing to crowdsource. <laughs> like ask your, you know, ask the people in your area, your friends, like, Hey, do you, have you heard, you know, a good psychiatrist? Like, and again, that's not always something that we feel like we want to tell people about, but I get recommendations for mechanics, for tailors for all kinds of professional services and mental health care really is no different. If you're an attorney and you ask other attorneys what who who they see as a therapist or a psychiatrist, I think that's really helpful. You need someone who works around your work schedule. You need someone who understands some of the stressors of your job. So asking other people and kind of crowdsourcing that among your peers can be actually super helpful. Is there something we can say to help reduce the stigma in asking? Because I I know that that's something that a lot of people struggle with. I don't think there should be. Like, it's not my fault. My brain is the way it is. But <laughs> I, I'm not willing to be embarrassed about it or or um, feel bad about it. But I, I know that a lot of people are really reluctant to admit to anyone that 
they think they might be dealing with something misfiring in their head. Yeah. How can we help reassure people that it'll be better if they do? I mean, on one hand, you will always find people who say, oh yeah, me too. Or, oh yeah, my husband struggles with that or my partner or my kid. I mean, it's, it's one in five in a given year and that's in the general population, not even among, you know, the numbers that I think are higher among attorneys of people who are struggling with mental health concerns. So the, the, the stats are solidly in, you know, supportive of the fact that you are absolutely not the only one, that there are many yeah, it's people not quite around a, it's you. It's not quite probably the person you confide in is going to tell you back, but like, it's going to happen a lot of the time when the person, if you t- ask somebody about it, it's going to turn out that they have experience with mental health, either themselves or in their family or with a loved one or a close friend or something. Absolutely. It's almost guaranteed. So often the stigma is absolutely like unnecessary because aren't necessarily speaking about it, but they're having that experience. Mm -hmm. And frankly, you can always phrase it in a clever way. I'm all like, (laughs) y'all are attorneys. Think about the languaging here. You can say, you know, I'm I'm just thinking of someone who can help me enhance productivity. You know, that that could be a therapist. (laughs) Or I I just like to really up my game creatively. I feel like I can be um, better in my relationships. So let's call it self-improvement if that feels better to you. (laughs) I don't need to label it. (laughs) Well, and I guess maybe that's a good point. Like to a certain extent, it's not actually important. Is it what label you put on? I mean, it's important for understanding what's going on and for treatment, but just knowing that, you know what? I haven't been able to fix this on my own. It doesn't feel like I'm able to process things or focus on things or walk into a room in a particular setting or whatever. Maybe that's not normal. That's really all you need to know in order to seek out help. Or maybe it's even the phrasing, it's not normal. Maybe it's just that I would like it to be different or better. I like that. Who cares if it's normal or not? Like I, Sherry, would like it to be different. So I'm going to see if I can pull that off for myself with whatever resources are available to me. We are obviously going to include a link to your podcast, to your book, in the show notes, to the uh, the CDC ACEs materials. Are there any other, speaking of resources, are there any other resources we should include <laughs> in our show notes? You know, there are there's there are lots of great resources out there around mental health and well-being and wellness, and probably specifically for attorneys. Mm-hmm. Maybe more than specific resources is just the like invitation to spend 15 minutes reading one of those resources, <laughs> whether it's NAMI or, or organizations that are specifically focused on attorney mental health and well-being. But yeah, there are definitely some really fantastic professionals out there who can be helpful to you. So spend the time to go and uh, explore that a little bit. Very cool. And obviously your podcast is Zen Founder. Your book is The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. And you are also our guest on Podcast 205. So, yeah. So thanks for coming back, Sherry. It's really great to have you. Thanks so much for having me back. Are you interested in implementing the ideas you've heard on today's podcast into your law firm? Could you use a little help? Hey, guys, it's Stephanie, the VP of Community Success here at Lawyers. And I'd love to help you tackle your business or take it to the next level. Head over to go.lawyerist.com backslash start to sign up for a quick call with me. And let's talk about how Lawyerist can help you create your best law firm. Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. 
and please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist podcast is edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.